Chapter Two, Part Two, of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Two, Neighbors, Part Two. They left at sunset. The west over the land was a clear gush of light up from the departed sun. The east, over the Pacific, was a tall concave of rose-coloured clouds, a marvellous high apse. Now the bush had gone dark and spectral again on the right hand, you might still imagine inhuman presences moving among the gum-trees, and from time to time on the left hand they caught sight of the long green rollers of the Pacific with the star-white foam and behind that the dusk-green sea glimmered over with smoky rose, reflected from the eastern horizon where the bank of flesh-rose colour and pure smoke-blue lingered a long time, like magic, as if the sky's rim were cooling down. It seemed to Summers characteristic of Australia, this far-off flesh-rose bank of colour on the sky's horizon so tender and unvisited, topped with the smoky, beautiful blueness, and then the thickness of the night stars overhead, and one star very brave in the last effulgence of sunset, westward over the continent. As soon as the night came, all the raggle-taggle of amorphous white settlements disappeared, and the continent of the kangaroo reassumed its strange, unvisited glamour, a kind of virgin, sensual aloofness. Summers sat in front between Jack and Victoria Colcott, because he was so slight. He made himself as small as he could, like the ham in the sandwich. When he looked her way, he found Victoria watching him under her lashes, and as she met his eyes, she flared into smile that filled him with wonder. She had such a charming, innocent look, like an innocent girl, naive and a little gawky. Yet the strange, exposed smile she gave him in the dusk, it puzzled him to know what to make of it, like an offering, and yet innocent, perhaps like the sacred prostitutes of the temple, acknowledgment of the sacredness of the act. He chose not to think of it, and stared away across the bonnet of the car at the fading land. "'Queer,' thought Summers. "'This girl at once sees perhaps the most real me, and most women take me for something I am not at all. Queer to be recognised at once, as if one were of the same family.' He had to admit that he was flattered also. She seemed to see the wonder in him, and she had none of the European women's desire to make a conquest of him, none of that feminine rapacity which is so hateful in the old world. She seemed like an old Greek girl, just bringing an offering to the altar of the mystic Bacchus, the offering of herself. Her husband sat steering the car and smoking his short pipe in silence. 
he seemed to have something to think about. At least he had considerable power of silence, a silence which made itself felt. Perhaps he knew his wife much better than anyone else. At any rate, he did not feel it necessary to keep an eye on her. If she liked to look at Summers with a strange, exposed smile, that was her affair. She could do as she liked in that direction, so far as he, Jack Calcott, was concerned. She was his wife. She knew it, and he knew it, and it was quite established and final. So long as she did not betray what was between him and her, as husband and wife, she could do as she liked with the rest of herself, and he could quite rightly trust her to be faithful to that undefinable relation which subsisted between them as man and wife. He didn't pretend and didn't want to occupy the whole field of her consciousness. And in just the same way, that bond which connected himself with her, he would always keep unbroken for his part but that did not mean that he was sworn body and soul to his wife. Oh, no! There was a good deal of him which did not come into the marriage bond, and with all this part of himself he was free to make the best he could, according to his own idea. He loved her quite sincerely for her naive, sophisticated innocence, which allowed him to be unknown to her, except in so far as they were truly and intimately related. It was the innocence which has been through the fire and knows its own limitations. In the same way, he quite consciously chose not to know anything more about her than just so much as entered into the absolute relationship between them. He quite definitely did not want to absorb her, or to occupy the whole field of her nature. He would trust her to go her own way, only keeping her to the pledge that was between them. What this pledge consisted, he did not try to define. It was something indefinite. The field of contact between their two personalities. Where their two personalities met and joined, they were one and pledged to permanent fidelity. But that part in each of them which did not belong to the other was free from all inquiry, or even from knowledge. Each silently consented to leave the other in large part unknown, unknown in word and deed and very being. They didn't want to know. Too much knowledge would be like shackles. Such marriage is established on a very subtle sense of honour and of individual integrity. It seems as if each race and each continent has its own marriage instinct, and the instinct that develops in Australia will certainly not be the same as the instinct that develops in America. And each people must follow its own instinct, if it is to live, no matter whether the marriage law be universal or not. The Colcotts had come to no agreement verbally as to their marriage. They had not thought it out. They were Australians of strongly, subtly developed desire for freedom, and with considerable indifference to old formulae 
and the conventions based thereon. So they took their stand instinctively and calmly. Jack had defined his stand as far as he found necessary. If his wife was good to him and satisfied him in so far as he went, then he was pledged to trust her to do as she liked outside his ken, outside his range. He would make a cage for nobody. This he openly propounded to his mates, to William James, for example, and later to Summers. William James said yes, but thought the more. Summers was frankly disturbed, not liking the thought of applying the same prescription to his own marriage. They put down the Truellas at their house in North Sydney, and went on to Murdoch Road over the ferry. Jack had still to take the car down to the garage in town. Victoria said she would prepare the high tea, which takes the place of dinner and supper in Australia, against his return. So Harriet boldly invited them to this high tea, a real substantial meal, in her own house. Victoria was to help her prepare it, and Jack was to come straight back to Torston. Victoria was as pleased as a lamb with two tails over this arrangement, and went in to change her dress. Summers knew why Harriet had launched this invitation. It was because she had had a wonderfully successful cooking morning. Like plenty of other women, Harriet had learned to cook during wartime, and now she loved it once in a while. This had been one of the wiles. Summers had stoked the excellent little stove, and peeled the apples and potatoes and onions and pumpkin, and looked after the meat and the sauces, while Harriet had lashed out in pies and tarts and little cakes and baked custard. She now surveyed her prize-beaten shelf with love, and began to whisk up a mayonnaise for potato salad. Victoria appeared in a pale gauze dress of pale pink with little dabs of gold, a sort of tea-party dress, and with her brown hair loosely knotted behind, and with innocent sophistication pulled a bit untidy over her womanly forehead, she looked winsome. Her colour was very warm, and she was gawkily excited. Harriet put on an old yellow silk frock, and Summers changed into a dark suit. For tea there was cold roast pork with first-class brown crackling on it, and potato salad, beetroot and lettuce, and apple chutney. Then a dressed lobster, or crayfish, very good, pink and white, and then apple pie and custard tarts and cakes, and a dish of apples and passion fruits and oranges, a pineapple and some bananas, and of course big cups of tea, breakfast cups. Victoria and Harriet were delighted. Summers juggled with colour schemes on the table. The one central room in the bungalow was brilliantly lighted, and the kettle sang on the hearth. After months of India, and all the Indian decorum, and two silent men-servants waiting at table, and after the old-fashioned gentility of the P&O steamer, 
Summers and Harriet felt this show rather a come-down, maybe, but still good fun. Victoria felt it was almost society. They waited for Jack. Jack arrived, bending forward rather in the doorway, a watchful look on his pale, clean-shaven face, and that atmosphere of silence about him which is characteristic of many Australians. "'Kept you waiting?' he asked. "'We were just ready for you,' said Harriet. Jack had to carve the meat, because Summers was so bad at it and didn't like doing it. Harriet poured the great cups of tea. Colcott looked with a quick eye round the table to see exactly what he wanted to eat, and Victoria peeped through her lashes to see exactly how Harriet behaved. As Harriet always behaved in the vaguest manner possible, and ate her sweets with her fish-fork and her soup with her pudding-spoon, a study of her table manners was not particularly profitable. To Summers it was like being back twenty-five years, back in an English farmhouse in the Midlands, at Sunday tea. He had gone a long way from the English Midlands, and got out of the way of them, only to find them here again with hardly a change. To Harriet it was all novel and fun, but Richard Lovett felt vaguely depressed. The pleasant heartiness of the life he had known as a boy now depressed him. He hated the promiscuous mixing in of all the company, the lack of reserve in manner. He had preferred India for that. The gulf between the native servants and the whites kept up a sort of tone. He had learned to be separate, to talk across a slight distance and that was an immense relief to him, because it was really more his nature. Now he found himself soused again in the old familiar, jolly and cosy spirit of his childhood and boyhood, and he was depressed. Jack, of course, had a certain reserve, but of a different sort, not a physical reserve. He did keep his coat on, but he might as well have sat there in his shirt-sleeves. His very silence was, so to speak, in its shirt-sleeves. There was a curious battle in silence going on between the two men. To Harriet all this familiar shirt-sleeve business was just fun, the charades. In her most gushing, genial moments she was still only masquerading inside her class, the upper class of Europe but Summers was of the people himself, and he had that alert instinct of the common people, the instinctive knowledge of what his neighbour was wanting and thinking, and the instinctive necessity to answer. With the other classes there is a certain definite breach between individual and individual, and not much goes across except what is intended to go across. But with the common people, and with most Australians, there is no breach. The communication is silent and involuntary. The give-and-take flows like waves from person to person, and each one knows, unless he is foiled by speech. Each one knows in silence, reciprocates in silence, and the talk, as a rule, just babbles on, 
on the surface. This is the common people among themselves. But there is this difference in Australia. Each individual seems to feel himself pledged to put himself aside, to keep himself at least half out of count. The whole geniality is based on a sort of code of you put yourself aside and I'll put myself aside. This is done with a watchful will, a sort of duel, and above this a great geniality. But the continual holding most of himself aside, out of count, makes a man go blank in his withheld self. And that, too, is puzzling. Probably this is more true of the men than of the women. Probably women change less from land to land, play fewer code tricks with themselves. At any rate, Harriet and Victoria got on like a house on fire. And as they were both beautiful women, and both looking well as they talked, everything seemed splendid. But Victoria was really paying just a wee bit of homage all the time, homage to the superior class. As for the two men, Summers seemed a gentleman, and Jack didn't want to be a gentleman. Summers seemed a real gentleman and yet Jack recognised in him at once the intuitive response which only subsists normally between members of the same class, between the common people. Perhaps the best of the upper classes have the same intuitive understanding of their fellow man. But there is always a certain reserve in the response, a preference for the non-intuitive forms of communication, for deliberate speech. What is not said is supposed not to exist. That is almost code of honour with the other classes. With the true common people, only that which is not said is of any vital significance. Which brings us back to Jack and Summers. The one thing Summers had kept, and which he possessed in a very high degree, was the power of intuitive communication with others. Much as he wanted to be alone, to stand clear from the weary business of unanimity with everybody, he had never chosen really to suspend this power of intuitive response. Not till he was personally offended, and then it switched off and became a blank wall. But the smallest act of real kindness would call it back into life again. Jack had been generous, and Summers liked him. Therefore, he could not withhold his soul from responding to him, in a measure. And Jack, what did he want? He saw this other little fellow, a gentleman, apparently, and yet different, not exactly a gentleman. And he wanted to know him, to talk to him. He wanted to get at the bottom of him. For there was something about Summers. He might be a German, he might be a Bolshevist, he might be anything, and he must be something, because he was different, a gentleman and not a gentleman. He was different because when he looked at you, he knew you more or less in your own terms, not as an outsider. 
he looked at you as if he were one of your own sort. He answered you intuitively as if he were one of your own sort. And yet he had the speech and the clear definiteness of a gentleman. Neither one thing nor the other, and he seemed to know a lot. Jack was sure that Summers knew a lot, and could tell him a lot, if he would but let it out. If he had been just a gentleman, of course, Jack would never have thought of wanting him to open out, because a gentleman has nothing to open towards a man of the people. He can only talk, and the working man can only listen across a distance. But seeing that this little fellow was both a gentleman and not a gentleman, seeing he was just like one of yourselves, and yet had all the other qualities of a gentleman, why, you might just as well get the secret out of him. Summers knew the attitude, and was not going to be drawn. He talked freely and pleasantly enough, but never as Jack wanted. He knew well enough what Jack wanted, which was that they should talk together as man to man, as pals, you know, with a little difference. But Summers would never be pals with any man. It wasn't in his nature. He talked pleasantly and familiarly, fascinating to Victoria, who sat with her brown eyes watching him while she clung to Jack's arm on the sofa. When Summers was talking and telling, it was fascinating, and his quick, mobile face changed and seemed full of magic. Perhaps it was difficult to locate any definite Summers, any one individual, in all this ripple of animation and communication. The man himself seemed lost in the bright aura of his rapid consciousness. This fascinated Victoria. She, of course, imagined some sort of god in the fiery bush. But Jack was mistrustful. He mistrusted all this bright quickness. If there was an individual inside the brightly burning bush of consciousness, let him come out, man to man. Even if it was a sort of god in the bush, let him come out, man to man. Otherwise, let him be considered a sort of mountebank, a showman, too clever by half. Summers knew pretty well Jack's estimation of him. Jack, sitting there smoking his little short pipe with his lovely wife in her pink Georgette frock hanging on to his side, and the watchful look on his face, was the manly man, the consciously manly man. And he had just a bit of contempt for the brilliant little fellow opposite, and he felt just a bit uneasy, because the same little fellow laughed at his manliness, knowing it didn't go right through. It takes more than manliness to make a man. Summer's very brilliance had an overtone of contempt in it for the other man. The women, of course, not demanding any orthodox manliness, didn't mind the knock at Jack's particular sort, and to them Summer's chief fascination lay in the fact that he was never pals. They were too deeply women to care for the sham of pals. 
so Jack went home after a whisky and soda with his nose a little bit out of joint. The little man was never going to be pals. That was the first fact to be digested, and he couldn't be despised as a softy. He was too keen. He just laughed at the other man's attempt at despising him. Yet Jack did want to get to him somehow or other. End of chapter 2, part 2